With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, we hear about Crop Nutrition Week and how the Agriculture Secretary thinks additional funding for farm safety net reference prices can be obtained without moving money within the new farm bill. But we start our show today with this week's Almond Matters, brought to you by Valent USA. Almond growers are gearing up for almond bloom in the impending growing season. Here's Brian German. In this week's Almond Matters segment, Todd Berkdahl joins us once again. He's a field market development specialist with Valent USA. And now, Todd, I thought we could continue our conversation from last week in uh, talking about dormancy programs and pest management and how growers might be able to maximize the time left before bloom, uh, which will be here in in just about a month or so. And so moving to weed management, uh, what are some options for growers to get ahead of some of those weed problems? You've got the herbicide program going down. You know, if guys didn't get a herbicide on in the fall, November and December, Right now is a really good time. We've got some weather. You've had some weather, rain, rain events. So the ground's wet. You've got winter annuals. If you haven't put down something, then, then um, you're going to have winter annuals that are coming up. They'll phase out, and the summer annuals will phase in. But right now, you put down, you know, Chateau, for example. Uh, Chateau and Matrix, or Chateau and Matrix is actually a pretty good mix. So um, Chateau Matrix right now, Chateau Prowl right, right now is a good mix. You can get it down and get it incorporated into the soil and, and keep your fields clean. You can also put on with your dormant, you mean go in with, with copper sprays too, as a preventative knockout spores, and especially if you've had a history of fungal diseases. You know, copper mix right now with oil and steam is a really good mix. That's what I would suggest. And now in terms of the weather this year uh, compared to last, I mean, we're not getting anywhere near uh, the same level of rain, but it seems like uh, the little storms that are, are coming in would uh, seem like it would be optimal for applications just because you get a little bit of rain and then you get four or five days to uh, maybe get in the field and then you get a, a little bit more rain after that. Yeah. I mean, if, you know, light dissolves light. Remember that from you ever heard chemistry and you Light dissolves like if a, if a tree is wet or it's moisture, you know, there's fog. I know we've had some fog. If the tree's got moisture, when you spray, that actually helps to get coverage over the orchard because it's already wet. You're not having to, to saturate things with, you know, high volumes of water. The trees are already wet. You mix it in there and actually mix it dilutes with the water that's already on the trees. Uh, and I'm not talking about standing water, but just, you know, the trees are they're not they're not lacking for moisture. I think we're probably going to get some more storms as the season progresses here. Hopefully, you know, miracle marches and April showers bring May flowers. March and April can be wet. We'll see what happens. I don't know, but I hope so. Yeah, I think with that weather forecast and uh, expectation for a wet winter, I think people are still holding out for that rain. And so, you know, uh, especially looking at what we had last year of seemingly nonstop rain, growers uh, might be best served to just get in while you can with some of these applications, uh, just in case those orchards do end up getting rained out again like last year. Get in while you can, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Get in now because if it does get wet, then you then you behind the eight ball and you're trying to catch up. And, you know, it's um, it's always better to ounce of prevention is worth found the cure. So. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. U.S. agricultural exports are facing headwinds. Gary Crawford has more. 
As most every farmer knows, trade remains vital to U.S. agriculture. Under Secretary of Agriculture Robert Bonney telling an audience the other day that his use of that word vital is probably an understatement because about 20 percent of all U.S. agricultural production is exported to world markets. And that's one reason the U.S. Department of Agriculture puts out so many reports, lots of reports on U.S. ag export sales and U.S. imports as well. The USDA has just put out its monthly ag trade update report. In it, we have the complete ag trade numbers for the first 11 months of 2023, and they are pretty much as expected. USDA economist Bart Kenner gave us the numbers. Calendar year to date agricultural exports for January through November 2023 are $159.4 billion, down 11% from the previous year. And agricultural imports were $179.3 billion, down 2% from last year. This makes for a U.S. ag trade deficit of almost $20 billion. Kenner says bulk products are seeing the biggest declines in export sales revenues. Wheat exports for calendar year to date, January through November 2023, $5.6 billion, down 28% from the previous year. Corn exports were $12 billion, down 31% from the previous year. Soybean exports, $25.4 billion, down 14%. And the U.S. has exported $5.5 billion worth of cotton. That's 36% less than for the 2022 year. Undersecretary Robert Bonney says yes. 2023, while agricultural trade has hit a few headwinds, we still expect a very strong year. USDA is forecasting that the U.S. will, in the 2024 fiscal year, export about $169.5 billion worth of product, down from 2023 by $9 billion, down by $23.5 billion from 2022's record exports of $193 billion. Nonetheless, the work to build exports continues. USDA will continue to work with governments and business representatives at home and abroad to create new markets and to create new opportunities for American producers. This is Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you just need to catch the news at a different time, you can subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet NewsHour on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet NewsHour, and it is available on Android and Apple devices. This is the Agnet NewsHour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Agnet NewsHour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. In today's National Spotlight, 2024 is the second year for Crop Nutrition Week. Chad Smith has more. Stephanie Zelenko, National Agronomist for AgroLiquid, talks about what's new this year. Crop Nutrition Week, we are in year two, so it's a relatively new event that we have. And it's a virtual event that's really going to connect our growers in the industry with various agronomy experts across the U.S. So this just gives us the opportunity to talk specifically on crop nutrition because there's a week for everything and there wasn't one for crop nutrition. And as growers are shooting for those higher yields, they want more information on how they can be successful and attain those yields. By having a week specifically for crop nutrition, it allows us to talk in depth about some of those different topics. The theme for Crop Nutrition Week is Elevate Every Acre, and it will include some new information this year. 
we always talk about how can I get more yield or how can I get more dollars return out of my acre and my crop production. And so by having Crop Nutrition Week, we have all these topics spread out throughout the week. So you can get a little bit of information on a number of different topics each day. So we're going to talk about things like how can you test things on your own farm and help you make those management decisions. There's lots of information on the industry, but getting real information for your own farm will help you make better decisions if that's a good option for you. Other topics we're going to talk about secondary and micronutrients. You know, we do a good job in the past talking about primary nutrients, but we kind of forget about some of those other nutrients. And sulfur has been pretty well talked about the last couple of years, but things like magnesium, calcium, those are a little bit more hidden. So we're going to have some discussions on that. And then also just things that you can do to help improve that overall management of your farming operation. It's a virtual event. So Zelenko talks about how to access the content. It is 100% virtual. And so to register for the event, you can go to the website, which is cropnutritionweek.com and just go ahead and put your information in there and register. If you do that, you're going to be eligible to win some prizes throughout the week. And then all the information is going to be sent to that email address that you register with. And so you can make sure you can get all that information on a daily basis. Chad Smith reporting. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, the U.S. Meat Export Federation is working hard internationally to promote U.S. pork loin to consumers in Mexico. USMEF's John Harith has more. With one month still to be reported, U.S. pork exports to Mexico have already set an annual record for 2023. U.S. pork loin is an emerging star in the market, and with support from USDA and the National Pork Board, the U.S. Meat Export Federation conducted a host of promotions in Mexico showcasing the loin. Lorenzo Elizalde, USMEF's Director of Marketing and Trade in Mexico, recently detailed these activities for pork industry leaders. The U.S. pork truck has made a tremendous contribution to promote pork loin. This year we have conducted around 150 samplings and tasting activities, and over 50 activities involve recipes using pork loin. These activities have been conducted in 25 cities with 18 commercial partners. At the beginning of this year, we implemented the pork loin quality sample program with a commercial partner located in Monterrey, Sedicarnes. Pork loin was distributed among the customers of Sedicarnes. And also, we used the pork truck to conduct tasting demonstrations with all the customers of uh, Sedicarnes that participated in the workshop. New consumer products developed in Mexico include smoked pork loin and a chopped loin product used in tacos. New product development has been very important. We believe that if we want to increase demand for pork loin, we need to develop new products. This year we developed two new products, chuleta humada, which is smoked loin, and also chuleta taquera. This is a chopped loin that is used for tacos. These products have been very successful they are being sold at Walmart and also at City Club. We promoted these new products through grill workshops, and also we used the port truck to conduct tasting demonstrations. For more, please visit USMEF.org for the U.S. Meat Export Federation. I'm John Harris. In other livestock news, the U.S. Department of Agriculture Commodity Credit Corporation announced in late December the marketing assistant loan rates for 2024 crop graded wool by Micron Class. Loan rates for ungraded wool are unchanged and remain the same from the prior crop year. 
marketing assistant loans, and loan deficiency payments, which are marketing tools available to producers upon harvest or shearing, are available for graded wool, ungraded wool, and mohair. Unshorn pelt are eligible for LDP only. The rates for graded wool on a per-pound clean basis are less than 18.6 microns, $4.43, 18.6 to 19.5 microns, $3.93, 19.6 to 20.5 microns, $3.64. 20.6 to 22 microns, $3.43. 22.1 to 23.5 microns, $3.18. 23.6 to 25.9 microns, $2.27. 26 to 28.9 microns, $1.04. 29 microns and higher, 76 cents. The loan rate for ungraded wool remains at 40 cents per pound on a greasy basis. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. We will return in just a moment. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Hours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director Brian German. A new economic study is available looking at sample costs to produce and harvest raspberries in the Central Coast region. UC Cooperative Extension Farm Advisor for Strawberries and Caneberries, Mark Boldus, said they've been getting quite a bit of interest in the new study. The raspberries, we just did a re-edit of that. And, you know, the thing is, Brian, the cost of labor are just skyrocketing. And so, you know, that needs to be taken into account. It's a pretty narrow spread there that growers are looking at for profits in fresh market raspberries. It's hard. That's what we find. And I've, I'm going to get a lot of requests for it. I had someone ask for 10 copies just yesterday. I think people are having a good hard look at this fresh market raspberry situation. And by the way, we have them for like 60 or 70 different crops across California. All of the cost and return studies can be found at coststudies.ucdavis.edu. Grant opportunities are being made available by the Pacific Coast Coalition Dairy Business Innovation Initiative. The application window for the grants will remain open through February 29th. Applications will be accepted from dairy processors in Arizona, California, Nevada, New Mexico, Oregon, and Washington. This fourth round of funding will include pandemic recovery such as price declines and additional marketing costs due to COVID-19, as the majority of those monies are derived from the Federal CARES Act. Webinars about the grant opportunities are also scheduled for January 19th and February 8th. The Pacific Coast Coalition Dairy Business Initiative is funded through the USDA Agricultural Marketing Service and hosted by several colleges and universities. More information about the grant funding is available at dairypcc.net. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has opened enrollment for the Continuous Conservation Reserve Program. The program, operated by the Farm Service Agency, offers agricultural producers and landowners conservation opportunities in exchange for yearly rental payments. The extension of the Agriculture Improvement Act of 2018 through September 30th ensures the continuation of CRP and other authorized programs. Those interested in enrolling or those with expiring CRP contracts who wish to re-enroll should contact their local USDA service center by July 31st. FSA will be accepting offers from producers on a first-come, first-served basis. Continuous CRP offers several different enrollment options, including the Conservation Reserve Enhancement Program, State Acres for Wildlife Enhancement, Highly Erodible Lands Initiative, and the Farmable Wetlands Program, among others. 
California poultry producers are struggling with a severe outbreak of highly pathogenic avian influenza. The World Organization of Animal Health has reported over 500 million birds lost globally to avian influenza since 2005, urging a review of prevention and control strategies. According to information from the USDA, the last reported detection in California was on January 8th. Currently, there have been more than 40 affected commercial flocks, 24 affected backyard flocks, and a total of nearly 6.9 million birds in California affected in this outbreak. Commercial flocks are being urged to practice strict biosecurity with ongoing research and vaccination efforts to combat the virus's spread. USDA's Agricultural Research Service has tested five vaccine candidates, showing promising results. The avian flu outbreak has affected supply chains, leading to concerns about dwindling poultry supplies for restaurants and markets. UC Agriculture and Natural Resources is partnering with the California Walnut Board and Commission to host the Quad County Walnut Institute next month. The event scheduled for Friday, February 2nd at the Robert Cabral Agricultural Center in Stockton beginning at 8 in the morning. Growers, CCAs, PCAs, and other ag professionals who work with walnuts are encouraged to attend. The first part of the event will feature information on management of husk fly and scale insects, principles of irrigation management, and orchard weed management updates. After the morning break, presentations will be covering crown and trunk galls, cover crop benefits and considerations, and research updates on borer and worm pests. Executive Director and CEO of the California Walnut Board and Commission, Robert Verloop, will be speaking after lunch, which will be followed by a panel and attendee discussion to finish out the event. More information is available on the upcoming events page at agnetwest.com. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Shining a light on resources for beginning farmers. That's coming up on This Line of Hours. An explanation of what USDA resources are available for beginning farmers and ranchers to enter into agriculture, especially those with non-farm backgrounds, courtesy of Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack. We have a beginning farmer program in which we invest literally tens of millions of dollars every single year in a variety of entities that basically make it easier for beginning farmers to understand how they might be able to enter farming, what kind of market opportunities they could consider, where the financial assistance may come from. The secretary on RFD-TV Thursday adds Farm Service Agency restructuring to better cater to beginning farmers, along with lending options such as FSA microloads, also lends to an easier entry into agriculture. There's also a series we've just recently enacted, a micro farm risk management tool that basically gives you the same kinds of protections that some of the larger scale farming operations have in terms of risk management. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. This is the Agnet News Hour. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back. Here's Chuck Zimmerman. I'm visiting with Stan Bourne with the U.S. Soybean Export Council. And uh, Stan, first of all, tell us a bit about yourself and what you do. I'm a farmer from central Illinois, raised soybeans and corn. Uh, I'm a director on the American Soybean Association, and I've been a director on the United Soybean Export Council. This is my sixth year, and last year I was uh, elected chairman. Uh, so I spend a lot of my time, uh, about 50% of my time, uh, representing uh, U.S. farmers in various markets around the world. I understand that a key area for you is international markets and exports. 
Um, I assume that means a little extra on the trade on the travel side. Yeah, this uh, it's been a busy year. As I uh, as I said, I'm running about fifty percent of my time on the road. But it's been a great opportunity. I mean, uh, uh, there's a, a willingness uh, in our customers. They want to hear from farmers in the U.S. Uh, about soybean production, and there's certainly a demand and a need in people's diets around the world for improved protein. What are some of the issues you run into, because I'm assuming it's different depending on what country we're talking about, right? Right. So, uh, well, there's a variety of things that uh, we talk about that differentiate U.S. soy from other choices. Uh, obviously, customers have choices of origin. Uh, but we talk a lot about uh, the uh, nutrition uh, components of U.S. soy. It's a little bit different than other sources of origin relative to uh, amino acids and energy levels. So it makes better feed, basically. Uh, it makes better oil uh, f- because of some of the characteristics of the entrainment when you do the refining. Uh, but we also talk about the availability, our ability to deliver, and uh, sustainability is a big issue for us in many, many markets. I would assume that China is a big market for us. Uh, can you describe like how big, how important is that one in light of the uh, talks that we had this week with our president and, and their uh, version of that? Right. Well, China certainly is an important market. You know, when you look at uh, China is the world's largest consumer of soybeans. They, they uh, import about 108 million metric tons. That's like nearly a third of the world's production. So they are uh, the, the gorilla in the room. And uh, we, we have a, a decent share uh, there in, uh, in China. I just came back from two weeks in China. And I can tell you that uh, uh, the relationship, uh, of course, you know, has been a bit strained between our two countries which I think is natural whenever you have uh, two superpowers like that. There's going to be things where we compete, where we disagree on. Uh, but in the case of agriculture and particularly in soybeans, that's not one of those areas. There we have good agreement, uh, and we're an integral part of their food security, uh, being able to provide soy into their, uh, their rice bowl, as they call it. So as we uh, come to the end of this year, uh, what are your thoughts about getting any further work done in, in the capital here in the U.S.? Uh, because once we get past it, we're into the election year. Right, yeah. So for my, my, uh, my friends at uh, ASA, we'll probably have a, a, a keener uh, view into that area. But I, I would certainly say that uh, I think we've got some clarity about direction where we're going to go as far as timeliness and a new farm bill. And certainly uh, we were encouraged by uh, the recent announcement that came from the USDA about the RAP program, which is uh, using the CCC to provide some funds for market development. That's an awesome opportunity. And uh, we really uh, have a great partnership with USDA uh, in the soy fraternity uh, to, uh, you know, public-private partnership where we utilize FMD and MAP funds, and these RAP funds are going to be uh, integral in helping us tell our story and grow our markets around the world for U.S. soy. At the Farm Broadcasters Convention, I'm Chuck Zimmerman reporting. The Agriculture Secretary thinks there is a way additional funding for farm safety net reference prices can be obtained without moving money within a new farm bill. Rod Bain has more. There is optimism by some that a new farm bill will be approved by Congress this first quarter of the calendar year. 
When asked his thoughts during an RFD TV town hall meeting Thursday, Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack said this is possible, even with potential challenges within Farm Bill deliberations, such as... Folks want to increase the reference prices. They want more support for the PLC programs, the ARC programs, and so forth. Well, that costs money. In most cases, that means moving Farm Bill appropriations from one title to another, which could lead to less support of the total Farm Bill within Congress. The secretary believes a potential solution could be commodity credit corporation funds to address reference prices. The ARC payments and the PLC payments and the CRP payments all come from the commodity credit corporation, so they've done it in the past. They just need to get to a point where they understand and appreciate that is the easiest and simplest and best way to get a Farm Bill done. I'm Rod Bain reporting for for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. A new inflation report shows food price inflation is slowing down to a crawl. Gary Crawford has more. In December, most grocery stores generally have lots of sales on lots of foods in an attempt to lure us shoppers in to buy other holiday goodies. And so it is typical for prices to fall slightly in December due to just regular seasonal pricing patterns. And that is what they did. Agriculture Department economist Megan Schweitzer says that according to the latest consumer price index, overall inflation for all goods in the economy, not just food, but everything during December went down by one-tenth of one percent. And for food, same thing. Food at home prices fell by 0.1 percent in December and prices for food at home or for groceries were 1.3 percent higher than a year ago which is an inflation rate far below the average yearly rate of about 2.5%. And in fact, for the 22 general food categories that Megan tracks... We saw price decreases for 12 of them from November to December. Decreases for products like pork. Which decreased by 1.4% in December. And pork prices were essentially in unchanged over the year. Selling for about the same average price as December a year ago. Staying with the proteins, shoppers saw poultry prices falling. In December, poultry prices declined by 0.4 percent and fish and seafood prices declined by 0.8 percent. Also, we had declines for fruits and vegetables. Both fruits and vegetables fell by 0.6 percent in December and cereals and bakery products were down by 0.7%. Megan says we did see some price declines for several food categories back in November as well, so that after a couple of months of falling prices... There were a handful of categories where prices were lower in December than they were the year prior. So among the products we are paying less for now than this time a year ago? Fresh vegetable prices were down by 4.8% between December 2022 and December 2023. Fish and seafood products are generally costing 1.4% less than a year ago. Dairy products, 1.3% less. And other meats, uh, which is a category that includes products like lunch meats and hot dogs, were down by 0.2%. Finally, we have to look at egg prices. We just got to do it. Egg prices were 23.8% lower in December of 2023 compared to the year before though we did see a jump in egg prices this month, just in December, by 8.9%. That was driven largely by new cases of avian influenza, uh, which is what had caused the large spike in egg prices in 2022. And so we'll be watching to see how these new cases translate to retail egg prices. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This is the AgNet News Hour, and we will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. 
Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. Here is today's featured interview. Renewable Fuels Association President and CEO Jeff Cooper says 2023 was one of the best years ever for the U.S. ethanol industry. Cindy Zimmerman has more in the ethanol report. Jeff, I remember 2022 was was a pretty good year for the ethanol industry, one of the best years we'd seen in a long time. Uh, what about 2023? What kind of year has it been this year for the industry? Yeah, I think 2022 was a, a good year for the ethanol industry, and, and 2023 was a great year for the ethanol industry. We, we are wrapping up a, a year that uh, I think will go down as probably the one, one of the best ever uh, for the U.S. ethanol industry in terms of uh, marketplace uh, advancements and progress, as well as gains in, in the policy realm. Uh, we, we've seen tremendous progress on uh, several policy and regulatory priorities that we had in 2023. Uh, so overall, I think 2023 has been a, a fantastic year for the industry. Uh, and we're hoping we can keep up the momentum going into 2024 and continue to build on some of the progress and some of the victories that we saw this past year. Um, well, let's look at, first of all, just overall uh, production and prices. How has that been for ethanol in 2023? Yeah, so we, we've actually seen a continuing rebound in production in 2023. Uh, we are expecting somewhere around 15.5 or 15.6 billion gallons of production uh, when the final numbers come in, we also saw a rebound in demand this year or a continued growth in demand from kind of COVID era levels. Um, so we are you know, moving in the right direction in terms of both uh, production and demand uh, in 2023. And we really saw a very healthy supply demand balance throughout the year. Um, you know, we had a situation where domestic demand was was bouncing back and, and we saw a stronger overall gasoline consumption this year and and stronger uh, levels of, of ethanol blending and and continued advancement in higher blends like E15 and E85. And at the same time, we saw some growth in the export market. So overall, we expect, you know, ethanol consumption to in 2023 to probably be the highest since uh, 2019, maybe maybe the second or third highest ever. Uh, in the history of the industry, and that's that's great news for the industry as as we have continued to to rebound from the impacts of COVID, which had a very long tail and a very long lasting impact on the fuel market, and, and and in fact, you know, impacts we're still seeing today. We 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 have not recovered uh, fully to pre-COVID levels of of driving and and fuel consumption uh, overall, but but ethanol continues to gain a larger and larger share of the gasoline pool. Uh, and, and that's, you know, that's been great news for the industry. And I think uh, 2023 is going to go down as a great year. Well, you mentioned E15 and E15 has been a focus in 2023, uh, trying to get year round E15. Um, it's been, been a process and there's, we've seen some action here even at the end of the year. So tell us about that. Um, kind of saga this year as far as E15 is concerned? Well, I think a saga is a good way to describe it. There's And there have been multiple chapters in this saga. Uh, I mean, it really goes all the way back to two, 2011, 2012, when, when E15 was first approved. We've always had this summertime barrier in place where, uh, you know, fuel retailers can't sell E15 during the summer months in most of the country. 
that was temporarily uh, removed during the Trump administration. We had a couple years of uh, uninterrupted E-15 sales, and then we've seen the Biden administration in the last few years issue emergency waivers to allow continued sales of E-15. Uh, but we are still looking for a permanent solution that applies nationwide, uh, all 50 states, and, and applies year-round. So we have been uh, working very hard all year long to secure that legislative fix. And that's really what it's going to take. It's going to take action by Congress uh, to resolve this issue once and for all. It's going to take legislation. We've, we saw a couple bills introduced this year. Uh, early in the year, we saw the the uh, you know kind of the same bill that we've seen the last several years introduced that would extend the one pound waiver to E15, and then later in the year we saw uh, kind of a, a, a newer version of that legislation introduced that provided some other um, uh, had some other features to it that that allowed us to 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 build support and, and really build the coalition of uh, supporters and, and advocates behind this legislation. So we are hopeful that uh, early in the new year, uh, when Congress gets back in town and, and starts looking at its agenda for 2024, uh, we're hopeful that uh, we can resolve this issue and get that legislation across the goal line and finally resolve this issue once and for all. You know, at the same time, you mentioned we've, we've seen some action just here in the last few days. Uh, there's a, there's another pathway toward year-round E15 that uh, allows states and, and governors to individually petition EPA for the allowance to sell E15 year-round in their states. And we saw eight governors embark on that pathway uh, a couple of years ago. And while EPA has been very late in getting around to approving their request, uh, EPA has finally sent the, the, the final rule that would grant the request of at least eight governors uh, to sell E15 in their states. That request has moved forward to the White House for final review, and we are hoping uh, to see uh, that final rule published and implemented here in the next several weeks, uh, certainly well ahead of the, the 2024 driving season. So we have a couple, you know, couple approaches uh, underway on E15. Uh, again, the legislative solution is the optimal and kind of preferred approach, but uh, failing that, you know, there, there is a pathway where states can do this on their own, and, and we're happy to see these eight states in the Midwest uh, sort of circling the wagons and, 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 and taking this upon themselves to at least allow their states and, and drivers in those states where a lot of E15 is sold. Uh, to continue accessing that product uh, year round. Yeah, I had to laugh with the when the the news came out that this has been sent. The request has finally been sent to OMB, and that this is the final step, and that it should only take two to four weeks. <laughs> ideally, yeah, well, right? Well, yeah. you know, ideally, this whole thing should have been over before the end of last year, right? Yeah, that's right. The the, the entire process should have been completed by the end of July, 2022. So that's 17 months ago at this point. Um, that's what the law says. The law basically uh, you know, uh, requires EPA to finalize any request they get from a governor 
within 90 days. And the governors, these eight governors, uh, got together in April of 2022 to submit this request. Uh, it should have been finalized by the end of July. Here we are 17 months later, and it's finally being sent to the White House for final review. That really is the last step in the approval process. But but yeah, the the, the EPA is very late in getting this done. And, and that's why we've seen a couple of states, Iowa and Nebraska, uh, sue the EPA over missing a, a very clear black and white deadline that appears in the statute. And it's our belief that that lawsuit is, is really uh, one of the factors that is helping to, to, to finally move this process along. Right. Right, because it seemed like they were really sitting on it there in, intentionally. But anyway, at least it's moved another step. We will continue with Cindy Zimmerman and the Ethanol Report right after this. You are listening to the Agnet News Hour. We continue now with Cindy Zimmerman and the Ethanol Report. Another big uh, word, I guess, this this year has been SAF. That's not a word, that's initials for Sustainable Aviation Fuel. And that uh, this is really a great, uh, we talked about it last year. That's when I first really started hearing about it. But this year we've seen a lot more progress made as far as uh, ethanol being able to provide sustainable aviation fuel um, to help lower carbon uh, footprints all over the world. So tell us about that this year and how that has really been a buzzword in the industry. Yeah, that, that's right, Cindy. When when we talked last year, the Inflation Reduction Act had just recently been passed. It, it was adopted and signed into law by the president in August of 2022. Uh, and so we knew that this year, 2023, was going to be all about implementation and the details of putting that law into action. And that's exactly what we've seen. Uh, and again, it's taken way longer than anybody was expecting. But last week, we finally got uh, guidance from the Treasury Department on how the sustainable aviation fuel tax credit is going to work. Um, and, and even then, it's, it's, there's still some things we're waiting on, and we won't have final answers until next spring, uh, March of, of 2024. Uh, but the bottom line is, we think that the, the direction this is headed is positive for the ethanol industry. We do think that corn ethanol specifically is going to have a good opportunity to participate as a feedstock for sustainable aviation fuel. And we do think uh, that, that corn ethanol in many circumstances will qualify for the tax credit that is in the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, and we know that that tax credit is important to making the economics of sustainable aviation fuels work. So uh, overall, we're, we're pretty pleased with the direction this is headed. Uh, there's still some questions that need to be answered and some modeling details and updates that need to be resolved and some things that need to happen between now and March of next year. Uh, but overall, we do see the actions that the administration has taken this year as slowly opening the door to the participation of corn ethanol and, and frankly, the participation of agriculture, uh, farmers in what could be a tremendous opportunity uh, in sustainable aviation fuel. We look at the potential size of that marketplace, and it is enormous. We're talking about 35, 36 billion gallons of sustainable aviation fuel that's going to be needed by 2050. Uh, 
that's virtually double the amount of ethanol that we are producing today or, or have the capacity to produce. Uh, so it, it could be a, a game-changing opportunity for not only the ethanol industry, but our partners in agriculture as well. Thank you once again to Cindy Zimmerman. That's today's agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.